Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us, and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. All right, how's everybody doing? Good to see you. Hey, uh, come on, will you please help me welcome all of our locations and everyone watching online right now. Let's put our hands together. Also wanna give a shout out to Celebration Northern Ireland. Come on, let's welcome them into the experience there. They're along with us for this series, This Changes Everything. And man, we have been having a great time in this series, unpacking how when you encounter Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. And you guys are in for a real treat today. We have a very special guest with us, a dear friend of mine. I'll be back and I'll be preaching and continuing the series next weekend. But today I wanted to hear, uh, I wanted you to hear from one of my really good friends and really one of my mentors. Uh, he's just an amazing man of God, has uh, an amazing church in Lafayette, Louisiana, and uh, he's kind of a pastor's pastor. He's been uh, a mentor to me and many of my friends in the ministry for a long, long time, and he's just an incredible man of God, and I'm so glad to finally get him here to celebration, and I thought that this series is just the perfect series to have him in, and uh, we did uh, a leadership event for some of our uh, men, some of our men leaders in the church over the weekend, and he did such a phenomenal job pouring into our men. And so church, I know you guys are gonna love him. I want you to stand to your feet right now and give the best celebration welcome you can to Pastor Jacob Aranza. Come on up, Pastor Jacob, Jacob Aranza. Wow, I love seeing this many white people stand for me. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as, as Pastor Stovall said, he and I go way, 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 way back. As a matter of fact, the first time I was preaching in his area, Chris Hodges was a kid in the youth group. And Chris's youth pastor brought me in to speak. And so that's how, and I don't look that old. I love you, man. But uh, it, it, it is, a, is a joy. Do you know how blessed you are to have the pastors you have? Do you? Um, when, when I got married, I was a struggling evangelist. I started preaching when I was 15 years old, and you'll understand it after you hear the story today. And uh, so, so when I got married at 23, I, I actually became a youth pastor so I could afford to be married. And it's a true story. So I left Lafayette and moved to Texas where my pastor led me to Christ was, and he told me I could be a youth pastor and I could afford to get married. By the way, that was a lie. But anyways, it, he, he meant well. And so I, I remember, I mean, I scraped together every bit of money that I had, and it was like $700. Now, let me just tell you something. That was bank back in the day. So, so I scraped it, and I went to a jeweler that was in the church, and and I had him, I, I said, I want to buy the biggest ring I can buy, diamond ring, for $700. And so I bought a quarter of a carat diamond solitaire. And really, when you looked at it through the Hubble telescope, it looked really big. <laughs> okay, but, but listen, it, it, it was, it, I mean, it was just what I could afford. And, and I remember when, when I presented it to Michelle, she was, you know, my, I married a beautiful Cajun girl. That's how I ended up in South Louisiana. And 
we had five sons and one daughter, and we created a new race of people called the Mexicans. And so, <laughs> so when, when I was just so excited to give her that ring, and, and I gave it to her, and, and I remember probably it was near our fifth anniversary, and I'm, I'm sure, Carrie, you, you would never do this, but she came to me and she said, honey, she said, I know you really love me, and I know that when you married me, you did your best, and, and I know that we, you know, we, we're, you're traveling and building your ministry, and it's kind of month to month, and sometimes week to week, and a lot of times day to day, but would you mind if I got a one carat cubic zirconian? So I said, well, baby, hey, if that will make you feel better, listen, I mean, it may be 100% fake, but you know the love is 100% real. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so there's a women, a lot of women get real rings, fake love. I mean, you got here, here you go. And so, and so she, she wore that for 20 years. And on our 19th anniversary, I mean, I knew that I was going to have to step up my game. You know, and, and so I, I went to, and don't tell her this, I went to a guy who owned a pawn shop in my church. And I said to him, I said, look, man, I mean, we, we got jewelers in the church, but I can't afford, you know, even it costs what they can do. If someone comes through, you got an entire year, man, you got to hook me up. I got to get a rock. I mean, I got to make up for 20 years. And he called me one day and he said, pastor, he said, pastor, I got it. I got it. I said, what? He said, someone came and pawned today a two carat heart shaped diamond solitaire. Holla, ladies. Hey, man, you ain't clapping. That means you don't want it. And so I said, all right. So, so I mean, I, I hocked the house and took a second mortgage out. And, and, and I remember we went to, and Pastovo, you know where this is. We went to our favorite place we go. Care, we, we go to this place. This is every major event in our marriage and life has been announced at this place. It's Windsor Court, New Orleans. Like back in the day, it was the only five-star hotel in New Orleans. Okay, after all these years, it's whittled down to about two and a half, but it's still nice. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I, I, did it, I, I did it right. Pastor, will you be so proud of me? Man, I waited. We had this beautiful dinner because, look, you never want to give a prize like that where you're not at a place where you can't be appropriately rewarded for that prize. <laughs> Come on, man, holler at me. They were mad about the ring. Now they're getting happy. So, 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 man, we had this great meal at our favorite window right there at Windsor Court. And you can look straight out right into this little beautiful bricked-in area. And, 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 and they come out and they bring dessert. And me and the guy lays that out there. And then he reaches over and he hands her that. She goes, ah, and opens it up. And there is that two-carat heart-shaped diamond solitaire. And I was rewarded in Jesus' name. <laughs> like a man of God should be rewarded for that. And so, she, I mean, she was so excited. And I mean, she, she put that thing on. And like for, for three or four or five years, she was so excited about this. She'd show that everywhere. And then one day, at, at about 25 years, it's true, five years later, she comes to me and she goes, ba baby, do, do, do you realize I, I don't even have a wedding band? And I said, baby, let me tell you something. 
when a hot Cajun princess like yourself is waving a big old football like that on your finger. I mean, people know you're taken. Come on, you, you know how some of y'all are during worship, you single guys and girls, you, you looking around, you know, see somebody fine on the third row, you're looking up, do they have a ring on? Let me lift up, you lift up your hands high. Worship, come on, call them, pastor. Have them worship, lift them up high. And so, so I said, baby, they know, and literally she stayed on me, this is true, Carrie, for 10 years to get her a wedding band. And on our 30th anniversary, after I had reaped 10 years of reward of a two-carat, heart-shaped, diamond, solitaire, bless his name, <laughs> I gave her the wedding band. But you know what I told her in those 10 years? Baby, when, when people see that gift, they'll know how loved you are. And do you know how I know that God really, really, really loves you? Because I look at the gift in the pastors that he's given you. Because God gave gifts. They're apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors. And when God loves you, he lavishes you with a gift. Now, in order for me to, to really share my message with you today, I, I really have to take just a little bit of, of my story so you'll appreciate it. When I was nine years old, I woke up and everyone in my family was gone. I was raised in the black ghetto of Houston until I was nine years old. And then when I found out I wasn't black, we moved to the Mexican ghetto of Houston. <laughs> That's not a joke. All my first girlfriends were black, Shamika. I mean, I, I had them all. <laughs> so, so I woke up one morning, nine years old. Everybody was gone in my family, but me and my dad, there were six children, just me and him there. And I said, Dad, where is everyone? He said, son, your, your mom and I are gonna get a divorce and you're gonna live with me. It's okay kind of close to my dad and so a few nights later he came in drunk one night about one o'clock in the morning and he woke me up he said come on boy get in my car and we got in the back of his 67 fastback Mustang and we began to drive through the barrio the Mexican ghetto of Houston near the ship channel any of you who know the Houston area Harrisburg navigation and we stopped outside of a bar and we waited and about an hour later my dad woke me up and my mom was walking out of a bar with another man and just nine years old, my dad picked me up and he drug me across the way and he took me and he shoved me into my mother's face and he said, look at your mother. She's a prostitute. She's a whore. She's cheap and she's used and she's no good. And then he pulled out a knife and he stabbed both of the back tires of the car that she and the man were in and, and they jumped in and began to drive down the road and he and I got in and began to ram them down the road in his car. And I, I remember... I'm 57 years old, and I can remember that like it happened last night. And I remember, I can articulate it now. I just had the emotion then saying to myself, no one will ever hurt me this much again. I will never allow anyone to get close enough to my heart, to trust enough, to love enough, to let this happen to me again. Some of you know, you were molested, you were abused. You were abandoned, you were left, you were forgotten. And that day, my heart became hard and it became dark. And when you were bitter and resentful and unforgiving, it is literally a seedbed for the enemy to plant in your heart. 
So to replace relationships, I began to fill it with immorality. I began to fill it with drugs. I began to fill it with gangs and all the other things that I was involved in. I have four sisters that got pregnant, 13, 14, and 15. My older brother was my hero. He was a drug dealer. My father was on his way to being married five times. The woman after my mother had been married three times. The woman after her had been married two times. The woman after her had been married three times. I mean, I, I have more relatives than Alex Haley's and Roots. I don't have a family tree. I got a family bush. <laughs> hey, and don't laugh if you're white. Several of them were white. I might be related to you. My mom would be married to a man who had been married seven times and he would go to prison for what he did to the grandchildren. That was my future. But a miracle was about to happen in my life. I didn't know it. A man like your pastor, and believe me, I can say he's like your pastor, drove by my junior high school. He was a white pastor who came to the Mexican ghetto of Houston to work at a small white Spirit-filled church, about 150 people. Everybody could afford to move and moved away. But he went there to work with his father-in-law part-time. And he drove by our school, and they had just begun integration. Now, how many of you remember integration? Integration was going to solve all the school's problems. And so what they were going to do is take kids from the poor black ghetto and move them to the high-class white school so they could get an equal education. Well, the only problem was Mexicans were not considered to be Mexicans. They were considered to be white. As a matter of fact, on my birth certificate, it says I'm white. Later on, I found out I was a Mexican-American. Not long after that, I found out I was a Latino. Not long after that, I found out I was a Chicano. And then about five years ago, I found out I was a Hispanic. So pray for me while I find myself. My wife, my wife asked me, she said, well, what does that make me? I said, a Hispanic. Shut up. And so, in the middle of all of this chaos, our junior high school is a junior high school of 2,000 now. 60% Mexican, 39% black, and 1% white, and it's a mess. Everybody wants power. The brothers are saying, we want black power. Mexicans are saying, we want Chicano power. And the whites are saying, we want out. Where is the door? And in the middle of all of that, this white pastor who knows nothing about working with inner city kids, that wasn't even a term then, said, God, give me that school. And the Lord spoke to his heart, and he did what your pastor would do. He got out of his car, he went and knocked on the door, and when the principal came to the door, he said, hello, sir, I know you don't know me, but my name is Pastor Coletti Keith. I'm at a small church here down the road. I know you're having a lot of racial problems, and I've been praying for your school. And when I was praying, God told me he was going to give me this school. At that, the principal said, really? Have you heard of Madeline Maria O'Hara? How many of you are familiar with that term? You, you should know who she is. In 1963, she sued the public school systems of America because she was an atheist and her son had to endure prayer. And she single-handedly, if you don't think one person can make a difference, took prayer out of every school in America. But how many of you know God always has the final word? I met that boy. I met her oldest son. He's a Holy Ghost preacher. Madeline Murray is now 
died and gone on to her reward. But I can tell you. <laughs> hey, everybody getting one. I'm not saying what kind of reward it's going to be. <laughs> and so the, 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 the principal looked and said, Madeline Murrow Harris from Austin, Texas. She just got prayer taken out of every school in America. If I let you in here, do you know what could happen to me? And the pastor looked at him in sincerity and said, what harm could it do? And the principal said, you're right. We have race riots, kids smoking marijuana, walking down the halls, open solicitation of prostitution. And he said, and I've been beat up three times this year by students. What harm could it do? I remember the day they came in to the first meeting. I did my regular morning ritual. I smoked dope before school. I walked in and they were having some band and some guy spoke. I don't even remember anything that happened. But about five o'clock after school, I've been home and a, and a knock comes at my door and there was a pretty Mexican girl that lived across the street from me. Her name was Dolores Carswell. Her mama was Mexican and her daddy was white and she was just fine. And she came and she knocked at my door and she said, hey, Jacob, those people, they were at school today. They're going to be back tonight. You want to go with me? And I said, will you kiss me if I go? And she said, yes. I said, I'm going. And with that holy motive, I went to the meeting that night. I really couldn't even tell you what happened in the meeting that night. I sat back with my friends. We were disruptive. She sat up at the front with her friends. This guy, they had a band that played that was kind of cool. And then this guy stood up and he talked about, I give your life to Christ. And if you wanted that, come forward. She went forward with a bunch of people and they broke up into different classrooms with people that said they were counselors. So I, I got tired of waiting. And after about 20 minutes, I literally just burst into the classroom where this counselor was talking to kids who'd responded. And I said, hey, Dolores, it's time for us to go. You owe me a kiss. And it was an African-American counselor, and he looked up at me, and he said, hey, man, did, did you want to talk to me? And I, I didn't want to talk to him, but let me just share something with you. I always grew up with a fear and respect for God. As a matter of fact, there may be a black or Mexican atheist. I just never met them, and they've never had enough courage to go home and tell their mama or grandmother they didn't believe in God or Jesus, or they would see God and Jesus on the same day. Come on. Even our people in prison are named Jesus. <laughs> and so I just respectful, I sat down. And when I sat down, he began to tell me something that was the most wonderful thing I'd ever heard in my whole life. Here's what he said. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It doesn't matter if your mama's a barmaid. It doesn't matter if your sisters got pregnant 13, 14, 15. It doesn't even matter if your brother's been a drug dealer and you've been in gangs. There is a God that loves you. And there is a God that has a power to forgive you and to change you. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life if you want it. And I went, there is a God that has a plan and a purpose for my life. I mean, I, I was like those kids who, you, you know, you've heard parents say when they talk about, well, how did, how did you have this many children? And, you know, the parents say something like this. Well, we planned him and him and her, but now him, he was an accident. I always want those kids to jump up and say, you know what? So are you. I plan to be born to the rich people across town. I don't know what happened with this. 
I, I don't believe in illegitimate children. I believe in illegitimate parents because every child is a gift from God with a divine design and plan. That day, with that African-American counselor in a chemistry lab at Jackson Junior High School in the body of Houston became my spiritual birthday. And though I was born in 19, I was born in 1963, or 58, when was I born? In 1971 in Jackson Junior High School, that became my spiritual birthday. It's hard to believe that was over 40 years ago. And the pastor that led that revival, he invited me to his church. When I was 17 years old, living in my mom's bar, serving beer every day when I came home from school, he announced that he was leaving the church and I walked up to him afterwards and said, if you leave, what's gonna happen to me? And he said, if your mom will sign papers, you can come. I came back to Sunday night services. She said, she said she signed papers. And that man took me in and he raised me like his own son for the next 10 years. And he showed me how to be a husband and a father and a man. And today, I talk to him every week. He's probably praying for me right now as he preaches in his church in Florence, Kentucky, right there where the Cincinnati airport is. I am living proof that the local church is the hope of the world. I'm so blessed to be able to say, but I am the first man in three generations of my family, now going on four, to be faithfully married to one woman for 34 years. Isn't it sad when you're named for your loss, your sin, or your shame? Divorced, molested, abused, widow, illegitimate, Sometimes you might think, well, well Pastor, those, those, those are terrible names. But many of us have been labeled that over the course of our life. And sometimes we not only allow it to be our past, sometimes we can never turn loose of it and it becomes our future. You, you might think that's unique. It's really not. During the time of the Bible, it was the same way. There was a man who was leprous. He was simply known by his leprosy. He was well known. He was a general, but he was simply known as Naaman the leper. But there was, a, there was another lady. Boy, how'd you like to have this name? Her name was Rahab the hooker, the harlot. And what she did in one moment of sin or shame became the label, that painful label that she carried throughout her entire life. The enemy wants to name you and blame you so he can shame you. Someone said, the enemy knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. But stop, because that's not really true. God knows your sin, and he calls you by his name. There was a man who, whose disease 
marked him. As a matter of fact, thousands of years later, we know him by that disease. Pastor talked about him last week. He was a man who became blind, and when you became blind during that time, they would issue you an actual robe that identified your handicap. He had a robe that was for blind men, but something was about to change for him too. He heard a crowd, and he heard stories about how a miracle worker came who was the son of God. And apparently he went to Sunday school somewhere, and he learned the scripture because he understood that one day if the Messiah would come, you would know that he was Messiah because of his miracles, because of his teachings, but most of all, because he could do miracles for even blind people. And he would be a descendant. And one day, while Jesus was coming through, this blind man who had no one to help him began to scream out. And the, the louder that he heard, I don't know if you've ever been around many blind people, their hearing is amazing. What, what they don't have in eyesight, they make up with hearing. And so their hearing is just amazing. And so he began to hear. And then he heard when Jesus was just close enough. And he began to scream out, Jesus, son of, say it loud, son of, and Jesus stopped and went, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot of people here that want a miracle. There's a lot of people that want me to do something for them that they'll never forget. But there's somebody here that knows who I am. <laughs> Son of David. And he stopped. And I love the rest of the story because the Bible says blind Bartimaeus threw off his robe. You know what that meant? I'm not going to be labeled in the future what people have always called me in my past. They're not going to call me blind anymore. Now, they were calling him naked at the moment, but they weren't calling him blind. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how life can lead us down some roads you never imagined that you travel down? Maybe you've been some. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you've had a child that was addicted. Maybe you've walked through abuse or, or some sort of pain in your life, a business collapse, you went bankrupt, something happened to someone you loved that was completely out of your control, and you start thinking, hold on, God, I didn't plan on this. How, how did this happen to me? This isn't my plan for my life. God, you, you got this confused. This has to be somebody else's plan. But sadly, some people allow a season in their life to label them for the rest of their life. Someone said life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% about how you react to it. I believe it's better than that. I believe it's 10% of what happens to you and 900% of what God does to get glory out of it in the end. I want you to think of a man who was an expert on pain and loss who wrote these words in Romans 8, 28. And a lot of us love to quote it, but we so forget the context of the person who wrote it. In Romans 8, 28, it says this, and we're gonna use the amplified version. I love this place in the captions gives you the fullest meaning of the Greek. Listen to what it says. And we, okay, I, I don't stutter. Okay, so when I but it's fill in the blank, it's like you, all right? And we, and we know. He's about to tell you and I something. A man who climbed to the top of the religious world. If he was a Catholic, he would have been a cardinal. If he was a Protestant, he would have been Billy Graham's right-hand man. He climbed to the top of the Jewish religious world. 
And then after an encounter with Jesus Christ, he looked at everything that he accomplished all of his life and he counted it as dung. Manure. So that he could win Christ. And he spent half of the rest of his life in prison. He was three times beaten and left for dead. He was forgotten. He was abandoned by everyone. At one time, he writes and says, all of Asia has forsaken me. Imagine a whole continent leaving you. That's this there. And now, he writes this, looking back on it all, the prison, the beatings, the rejection. And we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, would you say this with me? God is deeply concerned about me. Come on, say that. God is deeply concerned about me. God is deeply concerned about me. The enemy's told you everything but that. God is deeply concerned about you. Here's what he says. That God was deeply concerned about us. Causes, what's those next two words? All things. The divorce. The bankruptcy. The challenges you face in your health. The child has broken your heart. All things to work together as a plan for the good to those who not perfect, not never sinned, not never did anything worthy of all of the different things that you may have encountered or walked through. But for those who love God, to those who are called according to his and I want you to say this with me, God has a plan and God has a purpose. What is that purpose? He tells us right here. For those who he foreknew and loved, he chose beforehand, and he predestined to be into the image of his son. Now watch this. The enemy sends pain to you, rejection to you, heartbreak to you, loss to you, to deform you. So that the rest of your life all you ever do is hide where you've been hurt. You're like the man with the withered hand. You're always hiding it. Until Jesus comes and says, stretch it out. Show me where you're hurt. Show me where you're wounded. Show me where you were rejected. Show me where you were molested. Show me. The enemy sends pain to your life to deform you. But God sends it to bring you to the foot of the cross. So there he can conform you into the image of Christ. And the difference between whether you are spiritually and emotionally deformed or whether what the enemy sent to make you bitter has instead made you better, there's one difference. Where do you take your pain? Where do you take your pain? Do you take it here or do you take it to the foot of the cross? The one who knows pain. The one who knows what you've gone through. The one who was forgotten and rejected and wounded and despised. Who do you go to? Someone said trials will make you bitter or better. The I makes the difference. B-I-T-T-E-R or B-E-T-T-E-R. And that I is you and me. Today, I want to remind you that regardless of what you're walking through, God has a purpose and God has a plan. Now, I said all that to tell you what I'm going to tell you in the next seven or eight minutes. Can I do that? Can I have seven or eight minutes more? 
Okay. How many of you believe Jesus could come today? How many of you'd love to be in church when he came? How many of you know if I preach an hour longer, that will increase your chances? <laughs> Hypocrites. All right, here we go. The book of Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, that sound familiar, Bethlehem? Judah went to sojourn to a country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Then the man who was named Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, the husband, died, and Naomi had her two sons. And she was, say it with me, she was, you ever been left? You ever been left? Not forgotten, not confused, left. She was left and her two sons. And they took wives of the women of Moab, which actually, just so you know, was forbidden by God. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other one was Ruth. And they lived there for 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Listen, where's Romans 8, 28 in that? Where is it's all going to get better now in that? In four, five verses, she lost her homeland. She lost her husband. And just so you'll know, it was the responsibility of the eldest child to care for their mother in their old age. That was the last responsibility that Jesus, Jesus discharged on the cross when he looked down and he looked at John and his mother and he said, behold your mother, mother behold your son. He was the eldest child. So there was no one to care for her. As a matter of fact, until 200 years ago in India, when a widow was left alone, they would burn her to death. There was no one to care for her. She's lost her homeland, she's lost her husband, and she's lost both of her sons. Can I tell you something as a parent? You're not supposed to bury your kids. You're not supposed to bury your kids. And now, all that she has left is two daughter-in-laws. And look and see what happens. Verse 6. So she arose with her daughter-in-laws that they might return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them bread. Now she's going to turn and she's going to go back to where she was raised in Bethlehem. Therefore, she went out of there with that place with her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return, each of you to your mother's house. And the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now let me ask you a question. Why in the world would a woman who lost her homeland, lost her husband, lost her two sons, send away the only thing she has left? Can I tell you why? If you've never experienced great loss, you don't understand this. So I want to give you some insight to people that have. Because when you lose your husband, 
and then you lose the last two things that are dear to you, you can't bear to lose one more thing. So you know what you do? You reject it on your terms so it can't be taken away from you on somebody else's. And many of you who've been wounded over the course of your life, God has tried to send people that love you into your life. And you know what you've done? You've rejected them. The very cry of your prayer is, God, send someone to me. Send me godly friends. Send me covenant relationships. Maybe you've been divorced. Send me a godly man or a godly woman. God, but because you've never got over the past. Listen, until you do deal with your yesterdays, you can't embrace your tomorrows. And so she rejected it. And she's sending them away. The only thing she has left, she's sending away. Verse 9, the Lord grant that each of you find rest, each in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. She's sending them back home. Go back home to where you came from and find husbands. And may they take care of you like you've taken care of me and my, my, my sons when they were your husbands. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to go to your people. And Naomi said, turn back from me, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back. Now let me explain this because this sounds kind of sick. During the Bible times, the way that you kept mean, ugly girls out of the family was if your brother was marrying someone, if he died, you had to marry her and raise up children to him. So when you brought a girl into the house, it was a family affair. You think something happened to you, I'm marrying her. You got to be out of your mind. <laughs> and so now she says, listen, do you think I can go back to my homeland and marry someone, have a child, and then you're going to wait till he's raised and for you to marry him? That's impossible. That would never happen. Go back. Find husbands of your own. And listen how she goes on to describe this in verse 13. Would you wait for them until they're grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the, read it with me, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Have you ever felt like God himself was against you? Have you ever walked through so much pain? You think, if there was a God that really loved me, and if there was a God that really cared about me, he would not allow me to walk through this. God, why are you against me? Even if you feared to say that, if you've gone through great pain, I guarantee you, you thought it. Verse 14, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left and started the Orpah Winfrey show. But Ruth clung on to her and said, let's make candies together. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me that I may not leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And the Lord do so to me also, if anything but death departs. You and me, parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened that when they came to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited to see them. And, they, and the women said, isn't this Naomi? 
And she said, don't call me Naomi, that means pleasant. Call me Myra, that means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi or pleasant since the Lord has testified and the Almighty has afflicted me? And Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned with her from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley, what? Harvest. Now, we know that the scripture teaches us, I read it to you in Romans 8, 28, that everything works together for, in the end, for those who love God. Listen to me. Look right here, church. If it's not good yet, it's not the end yet. Now, in the next four minutes, I'm going to tell you the rest of one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Because you see, they got there during the time of harvest, and one of the laws was of the Old Testament, this is how you cared for the poor, is that harvesters would go through and harvest the crops, but they were not allowed to go back and pick up every little piece. That was left for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. That was Old Testament welfare. You had to work to get it for yourself. Help me when I'm preaching good. And so, immediately when they get there, it's harvest season, it's just gonna last a few weeks, and so, Naomi sends Ruth out to go to the fields and she begins to go and bring food, these leftovers, these scattered pieces together in the field. And one day she's out in the field and little does she know it's a near relative to them. Now let me explain all of this. You see, if a brother wasn't there to marry you, if your husband died, that privilege went to the next closest of kin. So Ruth is out there working in the field and it happens to be the field of a nearby relative. She doesn't even know it. And he is a rich, blessed man. And his name is, they just called him Big B. <laughs> so Big B came and he's checking on the harvest and he looks around there and he looks over at the guys and goes, Who is that over there on row five? <laughs> he asked, he asked, you read, go read the story. He says, who is that on row five? And, and his foreman says, well, you, you, you know, remember that Naomi came back and her husband had died while they were in Moab and her, her sons had died. Yeah, well, 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 this is one of the daughter-in-laws. She came back with her and she works night and day. She's hardworking and diligent and she loves her mother-in-law and she provides for her. And ladies, there is a message on how you get prepared to find your mate. You get out in the work of God. You start taking care of others. You start being unselfish and responsible and God will send a man to you. He's looking for you. And so he says, really? Tell her I said, like we say in Louisiana, come see. So she actually, you can read this story. She's called over and they begin to interact. And he said, look, you want to have lunch? So they sit down and they have lunch. And, and he says, now listen, my daughter, from now on, 
Just hang out in my fields, and my men will watch out for you, and stay near my young girls. You, you don't have to worry about it. We're, we're going to take care of you. And as she took off, he called the foreman up, and he said, tell the people on row five, don't even harvest half of it. Just leave half of it hanging there. I want her to know she's blessed. <laughs> and this went on for weeks. The harvest is now coming to an end, and they're about to have a big old party, a big old Mardi Gras celebration, celebrating the end of the harvest and how God has blessed them after they went through all these years of famine. And so the final day comes, the party's going to happen, and Naomi calls Ruth to her before she goes out to work that day, and she says, Ruth, baby, Ruth, I know I look old and stuff, okay, but I got a few tricks left up my sleeve I never taught you. While you've been out working every day, I've been knitting this for you. And so tonight, there's going to be a great celebration, and they're going to eat, and they're going to drink. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go bathe in oil of Olay. And then when you get out, I want you to put this on right here. I made it for you. And then I want you to put on some Chanel number one. Number five hadn't been invented yet. And I want you to put this on. And here's what I want you to do. Wait till the party's winding down. And I want you to find out where Big B goes to sleep. And then I want you to sneak over there as it's dark, because remember, no electricity, lamps go out, and I want you to sneak over, and I want you to lay near his feet and uncover his feet. And then she says this, read the story. She says, and don't worry, he'll tell you what to do after that. <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. I love the way the message translation says it. It says that Boaz was startled, and in the dark he said, who is it? And she said, surprise. <laughs> A true story. And here's what she says. Boaz, you are my near kinsman. You're related to my mother-in-law, and because there is no one left to marry me, you are the nearest relative. All this can be yours. <laughs> Quit looking at your kids. Look up here. They had a whole lot worse than that on TV. <laughs> and listen to what he said. He said, as a matter of fact, there is a relative closer than me. He'd been thinking about this a while. <laughs> he said, he is closer to me. And if he will not execute the kinsman redeemer right... I got a ring on layaway. <laughs> she wakes up the next morning before dawn. No one even knows that she was there. And she goes and tells her mother-in-law, read the story. This is exactly what Naomi says. She said, oh, well, sit back, baby, and don't worry. He'll have this settled before the night's done. <laughs> the beginning of the day, he gathers the elders of the city together, and he says to the man who's the nearest kinsman, he says, hey, uh, you, you, you know uh, Naomi? Yeah, I said, well, she wants to sell a piece of property and, you know, she needs to be cared for in her old age and, and it's really you, your first right of refusal. So, I mean, would you like to buy that property? 
And the man said, absolutely. He said, okay, well, let me know, let you know that with that comes a daughter-in-law that you have to marry, raise up children to her, her husband's name, and divide an inheritance. And he said, I'm not doing that. He said, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> exactly what happened. And I love what the scripture says. Let me read it to you. Ruth 4, 13, the New King James Version says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went in to her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. But listen to what the message says. Both Boaz married Ruth and she became his wife and Boaz slept with her and by God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. And the town women said to Naomi, Blessed be God who didn't leave you without a family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up and be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in your old age. And this daughter-in-law that you have brought, she loves you and is so much better to you. She is worth more to you than... How many did she have? She's better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms and cuddled him, cooing over him, waiting on him hand and foot. Come on, grandmothers. And the neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy. But his real name was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and do you know why he had such compassion? Because do you know who Boaz's mother was? Rahab the harlot. And listen to me, when you get it right, church, you allow your misery to become your ministry. You take the brokenness of your life to reach broken people. You take the grace of God that has set you free to set others free. That's what God designs. That's what he desires for every child of God to take vengeance on the enemy in such a way that you don't allow your pain to name you. You can be seated. In these last three minutes, I want to pray two prayers. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, how, how do you know my pain so well? On September 11th, we got the knock at the door every parent fears. Our 20-year-old son, who we just celebrated his birthday, was a half a mile from home. He didn't McDonald's, headed home. Someone didn't look, pulling out of a theater ran into him when moments he was dead. I can remember the three policemen standing there and my wife awakening me. And I, I, I'm, they're telling me that there's been an accident, that Wesley Ravenhill is gone. And I, I just remember standing there thinking, is this true, is this real? And I said, are you sure it's him? and they showed me his driver's license. Just two hours before, 
My son is one of our worship leaders, came walking out of a restaurant and he called me and he said, Daddy, there's been an accident. He said, I'm about 20 feet away from it. He said, whoever was on the motorcycle was killed. And I said, Joseph, w w was it, is it Wesley's motorcycle? He goes, oh no, Daddy, I can't see who it is, but, but they're covered. The questions. God, why? God, why Wesley? God, why him? From that day till this, as I stand before you, Chris Hodges was speaking and got the call. He was with Rick Bezet. That weekend, as he told that story, hundreds of people gave their life to Christ. At that funeral, hundreds of people gave their life to Christ. On Easter Sunday, a man came. We have a large church similar to this. People come. A lady who always sits on the front row, I, I see her all the time. She's alone, and she made it a point that day to say, Pastor, this is my husband. I knew she was telling me he'd never been before. At the end, when hundreds were born again, he was one of the last people walking out. He'd been praying with people up front. And his eyes were swollen. He looked at me and he said, Pastor, thank you for sharing your story. I lost my only 18-year-old son today. I surrendered to Christ. I refuse to allow the pain that we've experienced to name us when the Lord has named me forgiven, when the Lord has named me blameless, when the Lord has named you righteous, when the Lord has named you holy, when the Lord has named you redeemed. If you're going through great pain right now, every head bowed every eye closed, would you just lift both of your hands right where you are? Father, right now in the name of Jesus, in the mighty name of Jesus, the healer, the redeemer, Jesus, the son of David, I ask you to come. And I ask you, let the grace of God, your all-abiding Holy Spirit, the one that can answer every question, but gives us the peace to understand when we don't understand what comes from your hand, we still trust your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, you sent me here for them. You sent me here for them. Lord, touch them. Comfort them, Holy Spirit. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. The answer to whether I've been born again, you've been born again, what happened to me in Jackson Junior High School, that day became my spiritual birthday. Maybe you don't remember the time, but you do remember the moment that it did happen. Have you been born again? If you haven't been born again, you don't know your sins are forgiven. You don't know that Christ is living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't know that if you die, the next face you'd see would be the face of Jesus. And if you live, that God will fulfill his plan and purpose through your life. But I got great news. You can pray just like I did in Jackson Junior High with an African-American counselor. And today, right in your seat, you can pray. And by the time you get through with that prayer, you can be born again. Your sins can be forgiven. Christ will come and live in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. Maybe I've been christened or baptized, but I've never prayed to be born again. Pastor, today, would you pray for me today? I want to be born again today. I want to leave here knowing today was my spiritual birthday. I want to leave here knowing that if I die, the next face I see would be the face of Jesus. And when I live, he'll reveal his plan and purpose to my life. If that's you, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you lift your hand right now? Right now. I want to pray for you all across this building. Lift it up high. I want to pray for you. Real high. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Keep it up high. Twenty-one, twenty-two. Up high. Wave it at me. Twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven. Wave it at me. Twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty. Wave it high. Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, at this last moment, I'm going to ask these last 15 seconds. You say, Pastor, I should have raised my hand. And my heart's about to beat straight up out of my chest. I know exactly that you were asking this second time for me. I didn't raise my hand with these over 30, but I should have. Pastor, will you pray for me? I know you're asking this second time for me. If you raised your hand already, don't raise it again. But if you didn't, I'm asking this second time just for you. Raise it right now and wave it at me. Come on. Right now. One. I see it. Come on. Two. Three. Four. Go on. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Wave it at me. Now, church, let's pray out loud with everyone that raised their hand. We're going to pray this prayer together for them to be born again. Let's join them. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me, so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Come on, say this boldly. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again, and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Today, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. I am born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Church or to get in touch with us, please visit celebration.org.